0: Christmas is a nostalgic time, wouldn't you agree? It's uh, one of those seasons where I find myself doing things I would never otherwise do, like have my TV on the Hallmark Channel. (laughs) Or as Andy Williams likes to say, it's the hap-happiest season of all. And yet, for some of us, we know this reality all too well, that this is also The busiest time of year For counselors and therapists Because we might look around us And we have this uh, kind of subtle expectation On what Christmas should be like Right, and we're three days away from Christmas, and there's pent up excitement and enthusiasm. Perhaps you have a family in town today and they're here with you this morning. That doesn't happen a whole lot, or they're going to be here a little bit later, or you're going somewhere else to be with family and close friends. It's a really exciting time for most people. And yet, for some of us, it brings incredible pain and loneliness and despair and you begin to wonder to yourself as you look around at everyone else around you am I the only one? am I the only one who feels utterly alone? you see the, the Pinterest pins the Facebook posts all the, the Twitter tweets and everything else and everything seems so perfect it's going so well for so many people. It's like it's behind tempered glass. And you feel like perhaps you're the the only one who feels differently about the season. Why do I feel alone? Why do I feel so sad? Why does it feel like I'm the only person on the planet who doesn't quite get the christmas festivities under my skin why do i feel that way and as i've shared with you over the course of the last couple weeks in the season of advent i can't think of a better place than here for you to not be okay And I want to communicate to you because I I feel like this is something that isn't communicated enough in the Christmas season. If you feel alone, you're not. If you feel alone, you're not. You need only ask. Because I think in this season, we kind of run the gamut. Some of us here this morning, as I've already communicated, you have such joy and enthusiasm, and others are in the depths of despair. And one of the things that I love about being a part of the church is we all gather together in the same place to worship and give praise to the same God. And it's what makes us a church, the called-out community of brothers and sisters in the Lord. What makes us the church is our capacity to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and to mourn with those who mourn. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. And this morning, we are once again going to be looking at the real Christmas story. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, so if you have your Bibles uh, this morning, I encourage you to find the Gospel according to Luke, about three-fourths through your Bible, chapter 2. And in three days, we are going to uh, preach from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Unto us a child is born, a son is given. And over the course of this Advent season, as we get closer and closer to Christmas, we are going to find ourselves feeling closer and closer to the Christmas story itself. And this morning we're going to hear about two key characters immediately after the birth of Jesus, Simeon and Anna, and how God interacted with them on an ongoing basis. So here's kind of the backdrop or the context if you will If you will, We have Mary and we have Joseph And they're traveling from Nazareth to where? Help me out, where are they going? To Bethlehem, that's right And most of us we've never been to either of those places before So we don't really get a geographic sense of, of what it looks like for them to travel that way And we think, you know, it's kind of a nice trip Right? They're just on their way from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and they're on their merry way, and, and Mary just so happens to be what? She's pregnant, and we say, Well, that's kind of a nice trip. She gets to stretch her legs just before she gives birth, kind of like those little squishy balls that pregnant women sit on, you know, to prepare themselves for the delivery. You know, it's just kind of a nice stroll. And then they finally get to Bethlehem, and everything's so perfect. It's behind tempered glass, and they got the halos, and there's a, a baby halo for Jesus, and everything is just so clean, so pristine, so perfect. But the interesting thing, I think we know deep down that the story doesn't really go that way for Joseph and for Mary. So just picture this in your mind. Imagine if in the middle of a heat storm in July in Abbotsford, you decide that you need to walk from Abbotsford to Vancouver and back. And you're pregnant That's kind of how it feels, 135 kilometers of traveling on foot through the desert sun, through the scorching heat, and finally you get to Bethlehem. But as I've shared with you already, it's not as though they they find themselves in a barn. It's not as though all the holiday inns are booked and and the Hiltons are booked and those mom and pop uh, bed and breakfasts they're all booked. No, we know from the context that they are actually with friends. One of the the great mythological elements of this story is we have this concept in our mind that they've been kind of stuffed off into a barn, but that's actually not the case. It says in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, that the guest room was unavailable for them. And uh, Justin Martyr, in the 3rd century, 300 years after Jesus, he has some reasons to believe that Jesus was in a cave home. But either way, if he was in a home home or a cave home, he's, he's not at a barn. So I want to show a, a bit of a quote from you. This is coming from a gentleman by the name of Keith Bailey, He's world-renowned for his studies of first-century Palestinian culture, and here's what he says. He says, Joseph could appear suddenly at a home of a distant cousin, recite his genealogy, and instantly he's among friends. Joseph had only to say, I am Joseph, son of Jacob, son of Mathen, son of Eleazar, son of Eliad, and immediately the response must have been, you are welcome, what can we do for you? Furthermore, if he did not have family or friends in the village, which is highly unlikely, this is a small town of Bethlehem, this is his home, as a member of the famous house of David, for the sake of David, he would still be welcomed in to almost any village home. So Mary, and especially Joseph, they were very well known in this small town where hospitality was a cultural premium. It was a part of their identity, so much so that almost every single home had what is called a catalima. That is what you find in Luke chapter 2 verse 7, that word that is sometimes translated as "in," it's a guest house. So perhaps today you have mother-in-law quarters or you have a legal suite to help pay off your mortgage, right? We have those types of things. But in Bethlehem, they wouldn't use it to pay off their mortgage. This would just come to every single house for them to be able to display hospitality on an ongoing basis. If there was a sojourner coming through Bethlehem, or someone who didn't uh, have a place to lay their head, they would open up their homes because hospitality was in their blood. They always wanted to be able to make sure that someone had a place to lay their head. So to help give a sense of this, here's a photo, a two-dimensional photo of a typical home in Bethlehem. So you've got three elements here. You've got on the far right, there's the guest room. That's the Catalima. That's always on the back of the house. That's what we find in Luke 2, verse 7. There was no room in the guest room, so that room was occupied. And then in the middle of the house, you have what's called the family room. That's where the kitchen would be. That's where all the living would occur. And right next to that, you would have the stable. That's where they would keep all of their animals. And look right next to there. See those two things? Those are, those are mangers. So you could see this kind of setup if we were kind of following what a typical house within Palestinian culture looked like, how Jesus could still be placed in a manger, but he's living in someone's home. Let me show you a three-dimensional photo of this. So you can see here they'd come through the doors and underneath there'd be the living quarters, there'd be the living room, there'd be the kitchen, but also a stable where the animals were. And then upstairs you would have all of the sleeping quarters. So typically, one of the ways we typically think of the story is that Jesus and Joseph and Mary, they were kind of stuffed away in a barn. That's one of the things we know that absolutely is not the case. They were with family and friends and close relatives as she gives birth. And she lays her son in a manger, which is a fancy word for a feeding trough. And once again, we think this is cute, but Luke, he's so absolutely stunned by the fact that the Lord of the universe is placed in a manger that he can't help but say it like every couple of verses. Manger, 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 manger. He just, he's so mind-blown by the fact that the person who created the universe is placed in such a lowly condition, and then we get to our context, or our passage this morning, Luke chapter 2, verse 22, if your Bibles are open. It says this, When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, that's Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. Now stop right there. The custom of the people of Israel was that on the 66th day of the birth of the firstborn son, they would go to the temple in order to consecrate their child. And this harkens us back to a story all the way back to Exodus during uh, the Ten plagues in Egypt. When the people of Israel, they were enslaved in Egypt over 400 years, God sends his servant Moses. They've up to this point delivered nine plagues, but Pharaoh is unrelenting. He will not let the people of Israel go. And so it comes down to one tenth and final plague the plague of the firstborn. And God says to Moses, and Moses shares with the people of Israel that an angel of death is going to come tonight, but there's one provision. If you sacrifice a lamb, and you take the blood of the lamb, and you put it on the doorposts of your house, then the angel of death will pass over your house, and your son will be spared. But moving forward, what God says is that every single firstborn son of every Israelite family moving forward, they are mine. And so you must consecrate your child to the Lord. And so after the firstborn son is born, after 66 days, you go into the temple and you don't just want to leave your son there, you want to bring your son home. So what you can do is you can provide a sacrifice of one lamb and one pigeon one lamb and one pigeon now take note of that and then we're going to read what comes next notice the difference it says this verse 24 and mary and joseph came to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the lord a pair of doves or two young pigeons hmm that sounds a little bit different where's the lamb Where's the lamb? You might notice in your Bible, there might be like a little note and you can look to the bottom and it will highlight a passage of scripture, Leviticus chapter 12, verses eight through 12. You can look at the context a little bit later, but there was a provision for certain people within the Israelite culture that if they could not afford a lamb, they could substitute the lamb for another pigeon or another turtle dove. Because, let's just face it, pigeons, they're kind of like flying rats, right? They're, They're not all that expensive. But a lamb, that is precious. That is valuable. That is expensive. And this is Luke's very subtle way of highlighting to us that Joseph and Mary were living in abject poverty. They could not afford the lamb. They could not afford the the, the sacrifice in order to buy back, to redeem their son Jesus. And what I find to be so fascinating and so interesting about this is later on in the Gospel of Luke, John the Baptist says, "...behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world." So here's Joseph and Mary, and they cannot afford the substitute. They cannot afford the lamb, which highlights they're in poverty, they can't afford it. But also, in an interesting twist, Jesus is the lamb, isn't he? Though they don't know it yet, Jesus Christ is that sacrificial lamb. And so this morning, I want us to be able to step back and and to point out a few aspects of the Christmas story that we don't want to miss and how they're connected to our story today. Because truth be told, this Christmas story isn't in our Bibles so that we can have a holiday, as enjoyable as that is. The story is put here to help us understand who God is and who we are in relationship to him and why Jesus came and why it was necessary, and how we ought to respond in accordance with this story. And my concern is, if if we domesticate the story of the gospel narrative of Jesus' birth, if we put it behind tempered glass, then we miss the radical message that Luke, through Jesus, through God, intends to share with us. And the radical message is this. If your Bibles are open, look at chapter 2, verse 11. Luke chapter 2, verse 11. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord's. And instantly, what we recognize through this tiny little verse, which is kind of the theme statement of this entire book, if there is a Savior, then it must mean something is in need of saving. That makes sense, right? There's a reason why the Savior has come, why we are in desperate need of the Savior to be here. If we are left alone to our own devices, our own wants, our own dreams, our own plans... And things aren't going to work out very well for us. We're a mess. You see, we don't need a Savior when things are going great. We don't need a Savior when everything is perfect. We only need a Savior when we are in need of saving. It's a a recognition for each and every Christian that I cannot save myself from my predicament, I can't get myself out of this mess. And so Christ comes down, and he takes my place as the substitute to the wrath of God so that I can be redeemed, so that I can be set free. This is the real Christmas story. And there's a couple things that I want us to recognize within this story, and the first one is this. These were trying times for Israel. These were very trying times for Israel. If you were a Jew, you had to be wondering what God was doing up to this point because it seemed as though God was nowhere to be found. A lot of them asking this question, God, where are you? What's going on? Like the people of Israel, when they were enslaved in Egypt, they had to wait 400 plus years Before someone came to deliver them from their bondage and bring them to the land of promise. Now, interestingly, remarkably, the people of Israel in this passage, they've also been waiting for 400 years. Did you know that? It's been 400 years since the last prophet has spoken, 400 years since they have heard the word of God proclaimed through his prophet. And they're waiting wondering what's going to happen when is the messiah going to come when is god going to make all things new it has been silence for four centuries and during this time they were under harsh roman oppression they were under very oppressive taxes they were under the whims of whatever the roman authorities wanted to do I shared with you last week that King Herod, he decided one day, I need to find this Jesus. I don't know where he is, so here's what I'm going to do I'm going to cast a wide net, and I'm just going to kill every young boy age two and under. And I'm just going to kill all of them, and hopefully, Jesus is part of that company. And it just happens. They're under harsh oppression. The Roman authorities can do whatever they want. And again, not ironically, but surprisingly to us, exactly the same thing happened in the book of Exodus when the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. Every boy aged two and under was put to death. Same thing happening here again when Jesus is born. So if you're a religious Jew, one waiting for this, this Messiah to come, you are especially tired of waiting. Because it seems like God has given up on you, that He's nowhere to be found. And perhaps if we're honest with ourselves, some of us feel that way this morning. Where are you? I haven't felt your presence for a while. I don't know why you would allow this to occur in my life. Why do you allow evil and suffering and death to occur? I don't know where you are, God. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're up to. That's how the people of Israel often felt. And just bringing it a little bit closer to home, let's just imagine for a moment that a little over 400 years ago, the thing called the Reformation never occurred. And shortly after that, the church just crumbled. And there were no more churches. No more gathering together as the body of believers. No more hearing the word of the Lord proclaimed. No more congregational worship. Life just kind of went on. That's often how it felt for the people of Israel during this time, during this, this culture. They find themselves waiting. And then we get to chapter 2, verse 25. If your Bibles are open, look there with me. It says this, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So in the story, we have two stand-ins. The first one is Simeon, and we'll find out in just a little bit, the second one is Anna. And so here's Simeon, he's a man of great faith. We enter into the scene, and, and he's about to see Jesus. But there's a massive backstory to this, getting to the point of this particular passage. It took a whole lot of trusting, a whole lot of obeying, and a whole lot of waiting Simeon received a promise from God way back, perhaps decades before, that there would come a day in which he would catch a glimpse of the Messiah. And what I find so amazing about this passage is that Simeon, it's not as though he meets King Jesus in his adult form, performing miraculous signs and wonders and overthrowing the principalities and the powers and being crucified, died and buried and then being resurrected. He doesn't witness any of that. He just sees a baby that's it he just sees a baby now just imagine for a moment if if we were all um, we had a dictator who was dictating every single move of our life we were under harsh oppression and God delivered a prophecy that one day you would meet the person who would overthrow the powers of the dictatorship but here's the thing None of the things that that would come to fruition you would see. You would just meet the person. You would just meet the baby. You wouldn't see freedom and, and liberation from your bondage. You would just meet the person. That's it. And I find it so interesting that Simeon, a man of faith, says, that's enough for me. Just to catch a glimpse of Jesus, just to see him, that is a sign of a fulfilled promise, and now I can die in peace. And the end of the story, we find it is Simeon who is prophesying to Mary. Luke chapter 2, verse 27, he says this, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought the child Jesus to do him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his hands and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may dismiss your servant in peace. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too, Mary. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe Asher. She was very old. She lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Can you imagine? And coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And so like Simeon and Anna, Israel, they they find themselves in a state of waiting. Waiting for a resolution. Waiting for brokenness to be mended. Waiting for their pain and their suffering to be taken away. Waiting for their addictions to be healed, for their fears to be removed, for sickness to be healed. They're waiting. These weren't just trying times for the people of Israel, they were also trying times for Joseph and Mary. These were dark, dark days for Joseph and Mary. If your Bibles are still open, look at chapter 1, verse 26. Here's what it says. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin who was pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. So, Scripture says that Mary is highly favored. An angel comes to deliver this message to her. The Lord is with you. But then what occurs next, which is only two pages in our Bible, but seems like an eternity for Mary, is a series upon bad news, upon bad news, upon bad news. She travels... 135 kilometers before she gives birth. She will have a baby surrounded by disapproving family because she's not married yet and she has just given birth. She will live in abject poverty. Again, two pigeons. There is no lamb. And she'll eventually flee for her life, for her son's life, when Herod seeks to kill him and even though she knows that God is at work, she can't see it and she has to live with the remorse of knowing that many of her friends' children are put to death on account of King Herod trying to find her child. The vast majority of her life is on the run, wondering where she's going next, wondering why God would allow these things to occur. And I think to myself, I wonder if they ever go back to Luke chapter 1, Mary, you are highly favored. I wonder if they ever think about that. And say, how? How am I highly favored? We have no money. We have no reputation. Remember, Joseph and Mary, they were, they were pledged to be married, but they weren't married yet. And they live in a day and age in which that's something that's not very kosher and you would be ostracized. You would get the, the letter A, the scarlet letter, if something like this would occur within this culture. And I'm sure, you know, they could probably say something like, oh, don't worry about it. It's a virgin birth. God put this baby in my womb. And all of her friends and family members and coworkers and neighbors and random strangers said, oh, of course. And they didn't put anything on Facebook, and they didn't tell any of it to their friends. No reputation. No money. Living in isolation, always on the run. These are trying times for Joseph and Mary, but these are trying times for us too. You see, after 30 years of Jesus' birth, his earthly ministry begins. There's three years of healing and teaching and power, but then Jesus is put to death. But on the third day, he rises again, and the disciples, they're, they're elated. But then Jesus says, I have to leave you. I have to depart, and I will send my Holy Spirit. And it has been 2,000 years of waiting. Not just 400, but two thousand years. God, where are you? God, when are you coming back? God, when are you going to make all things new? God, when will you wipe away every tear from our eyes? When will our brokenness be mended? Two thousand years. You see, we often have these expectations on on how things should work in our life, and, and we discover that God actually has a very different plan. Here are some of the things that we tend to forget. The first thing I put in your note sheet is this. God works in the shadows. God works in the shadows. Now, I don't know about you, but I would much rather if God worked in the light. Because if God worked in the light, then I could see what he's doing, and I could tell him when he's on the wrong path, and he needs to make a course correction because I know better than God knows. But there's a huge issue when he works in the shadows. I don't know what he's doing, and I don't know what he's up to. You see, the pattern of life from the beginning of Scripture all the way to the end, we see a God who is primarily at work in the shadows, and we hate that. We hate it. I think, for instance, of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And then it says this, Give us this day our daily what? Bread. You see, this harkens us back to a story in the Old Testament when the people of Israel, they were out in the wilderness, and God always provided them enough food simply for one day. They couldn't take the next week's worth of food. In fact, if they tried, it would just spoil instantly. They had to trust in God that He's going to provide for me today, and even though I have nothing for tomorrow, He's going to provide for me tomorrow as well. But the pattern of every single human heart is this God, I don't want you to provide my daily bread. I want you to fill up my fridge, my freezer downstairs, my stock house. I want everything secure because you know what happens then? I no longer need to put my trust in you. I can say, I got it from here. Everything's going to be taken care of, I have everything that I need. And yet Jesus says, my way is better than your way. And the best thing that we can do as Christians is to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and to say, God, I know that you have my best intentions and hearts and I give myself to you. When we follow Jesus long enough, those of us who have been following Jesus for a long time, we know this is true. There's going to be a lot of pondering. There's going to be a lot of waiting. There's going to be a lot of wondering. Because more often than not, God works in the shadows. And every single time, we want a little bit more in our life. We want to treat God as though he is our cosmic consultant. You can tell me what you think I should do, God, but I want to reserve the right to say, I'm going to take it or leave it because I know a better way. And God says, the pattern of a Christian heart is to say, I don't know what's coming next, but I'm going to put my trust in you. Think, for instance, of what we read in Isaiah 55, verse 8. God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways are my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So here's a key question that we need to ask of ourselves Will we trust God as he works in the shadows? Will you relinquish control? That's a hard thing to do. Because the pattern of the human heart, on account of our sin nature, the traitor within, is always wanting to maintain control. To know what's happening next. So that you can plan accordingly. See, those with you who have kids, um, Have any of you gone through the why phase? Anyone? Especially if you have a kid who's um, six, or four, or three, or all of those. You know, you'll try and tell them something, and they'll say, why? Right, Liam? Why? But why? Why? Well, because of this, but why? Well, because of this, but why? Why do they do that? Because they want you to go crazy, that's why. Right? And then, you know, you you try to change the message a little bit. You kind of change the metaphors and the images and the concepts to kind of a three, four, five, six-year-old level. And you're really proud of yourself, and you look over at your spouse, and she goes, that was a good example, really good. And, you know, you're feeling good, and you're like, finally, they understand. But then they say what? They say... Why? Now, we don't put our kids into a timeout when they ask why, right? They just want to understand. And then I think to myself, if that's how I treat my children, they simply not understanding what I'm thinking through and all the patterns that I fully know and understand, but they need to put their trust in me as a loving father, then how much more is that for me as I approach the Lord of the universe who knows all things. You see, I have a a three-pound brain, and I feel like I'm pretty smart most days. And I feel like, God, you can just confide in me. Let me know what your plan is. And God says, Justin, my my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. I don't mean to insult your intelligence, Justin, but I know better than you. Okay. Okay. And you see the pattern of the Christian heart is recognizing that God knows best. And there's some things that I don't understand, but God still knows the best way. God is at work in the shadows because he is God and I am not. That's why. And even if he did like reveal everything, I have to admit that there's still going to be some things that I don't fully understand. And here's the second thing we need to recognize. God works on his own timetable. God works on his own timetable. And if it's true that we would much rather God work in the light than in the shadows, then it's desperately true that we wish God would work on our own timetable. I'll be honest with you if you're willing to be honest with me for a second. If you're anything like me on account of my sin nature, I'm desperately praying to God when something's going poorly in my life. But when things are going well, I can feel something welling up inside me where I say to God, you know what? I can take it from here. Thanks, God, for your help. I'm I'm really grateful, but why don't you just kind of take yourself away for a little while, and if something goes poorly, I'll rub that lamp. I'll reach out to you. Don't worry, but things are going well right now. I got it under control. Now, here's one of the things that that I find perhaps sad and depressing, but but really awe-inspiring by the same token. Is it possible, dear Christian that what is needed in our life most desperately is a life crisis for us to simply acknowledge the presence of the God that we serve because when things are going well it's so tempting for us to treat God as though he doesn't exist at all and then when the crisis occurs we say God where are you and God says finally you're paying attention Where are you, God? Why would you allow this to occur? But in the process, we fall to our knees and we're finally reaching out to God, recognizing His existence. I think, for instance, of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which says this We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And I have shared with you before that the good, biblically speaking, is not for you to get whatever you want. The good is for you to conform to the likeness of Jesus. You see, what God wants more desperately than anything else for you is for you to conform to the image of the Son, for you to grow in Christ's likeness, for you to grow in your walk with Jesus, for you to put your trust in Him in the midst of every single circumstance of your life. And maybe, just maybe, there's instances in your life where you are enduring difficulty And God is allowing that to occur so that you can humble yourself in the sight of God. For you to recognize the existence of God. And I think to myself, yeah, but couldn't you make it a little bit easier? I think, for instance, of the one sport that I can think of where you not for a moment do you look at the finish line. And that's rowing you look straight at the start line and you never see the finish. And in most of these competitions, you have someone who sits right on the back and they see the finish line the whole time. They're telling you when to row, they're telling you when to make the adjustments, but you see nothing behind you. All you do is faithfully row and the reason you're willing to do it is because you trust in the source at the back of the boat as they are telling you to push on. And that's often what it's like for us in the Christian life, isn't it? We can't see what's coming next. We don't know when the race is going to finish. All we can do is put our trust in our Lord and God. Because he knows best. So here's three things that I want you to take to the bank really quickly before we close. The first one is this. The Holy Spirit will give you what you need. The Holy Spirit will give you what you need. I think again of Simeon. It says that the Holy Spirit reveals himself to Simeon. He makes a promise to Simeon. He prods Simeon to enter into the temple. It's all the work of the Holy Spirit. If you have time a little later, look again at verse 25 to 30. Notice the number of times the Holy Spirit is mentioned as he's constantly guiding his path. It's a beautiful illustration on how the Holy Spirit works in our life. He's always prompting us, leading us, guiding us. We need only listen. The Holy Spirit will give you what you need. Number two, trust God for what he says he will do. Trust God for what he says he will do. What's that song that we sing from time to time? Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. You see, that's the pattern of the Christian heart is recognizing that we ought to put our trust in our Lord and Savior Jesus in the midst of the circumstances of life. Because there are times when we're gonna feel tempted to bail out, to say, God, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't know that, that these were the types of things I'd have to give up to follow you. But you see, again, like that rower, if we have a proper understanding of all the things that God has done in the past, the faithfulness of God, that he has always, always, always kept his end of the bargain, that he has never left us, he has never betrayed us, that's what gives us the confidence to keep rowing even though we can't see what's coming. It gives us a higher capacity to trust God for what he says he's going to do because we have a greater understanding of the character and the attributes of God, that he will do what he says he will do. Yes, God works in the shadows. Yes, he works on his own timetable, but we can take it to the bank that God will do what he says he will do because we serve a trustworthy God. And here's the fourth and final point, and it might feel like a bit of a shift, but I think the passage of Scripture we've been looking at demands this. Nobody should die without seeing Jesus. Nobody should die without seeing Jesus. Nobody should die without seeing Jesus. Jesus. You see, one thing scripture tells us is that we're all going to see Jesus after we die, but there's nothing sweeter than to see him before we die. I think again of the words of Simeon in verse 29 Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. In this Christmas season, Please know that the shining light of Jesus, it's not only a gift to receive, it's a gift to give. And so if, like me, you have difficulty with waiting, then perhaps as you wait, you can shine the light of Jesus. You can let others know the joy that you have found And Jesus Christ, your Lord and King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you came from heaven to earth, not only to be born, but to live and to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We ask, Lord, that you would change our hearts in such a way that we would be more aware of that reality during this Christmas season, that as a body of believers, we would draw together and that we would meditate on this reality and that you would inspire us to share this good news with those who desperately need to hear it most. So inspire us by the power of the Holy Spirit like you inspired Simeon and Anna. Do the same to us, we pray. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.